0: For the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the, uh, um, the Beatitudes. And what I entitled this is, It Is What It Is, What It Means to Be a Genuine Disciple. And what I'm going to do is take it verse by verse as we kind of walk through the Beatitudes. We're going to go through about three of them pretty well today. And then the fourth one's going to lead us into taking the Lord's Supper time together. And then we're going to do that. And the next week we'll finish, it, finish all that up. I just want us to kind of walk through this summer I studied the Beatitudes. I was reading through Proverbs, and then I was studying through the Beatitudes, and I realized something that I'd never noticed before, and that is that the Beatitudes are really a progression. It starts with the least thing that Jesus asks of us and ends with persecution. But, we, you know, in other words, if, you're, if you've given up your life, you're willing to be persecuted. If you've not given up your life, then you're probably not going to mourn. You're not going to be a man or a woman of righteousness. You know, you're not going to be that kind of person. So it's really a progressive thing as you go through it. You're not going to be a gentle person and all those things it talks about. You know, so what I want us to do is kind of look at that and look at it from a standpoint of of almost starting from the beginning. This is kind of the the manual of, of, of who we're supposed to be as Christians. And so let's kind of walk through that. First of all, I want to read just a... a uh, if you'll bring the first slide up for us there real quickly, if you'll do that, okay? It simply says, when he saw the crowds, he went on, uh, up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began teaching them, saying, now keep it there for a moment. And what I want us to do, I want to just kind of give a little bit of the background of this. There's a lot of analogies here between Jesus and Moses. You know, Moses went on a mountain, Jesus went up on a mountain. There was, you know, there was the time of Herod when he asked for the, 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 the uh, was going to kill the male babies. Same thing happened when, around the time of Jesus and everything like that, when all of it happened with him. You know, and, and you look at the, the analogies here. In fact, the, the time, the only time the concept of blessed was used, was stated by Moses in reference to Israel. And you see it all the way through that, through the Old Testament. And, and all of a sudden, Jesus takes the same analogy, the same thing, of what it means, blessedness, uh, you know, and what, what that is. And the salvation under Moses, think about this, was the deliverance to a new land out of slavery. At the same time, the new Moses, which is Jesus, would deliver us out of slavery of a different kind, that is sin. So you need to see the analogies of what's happening here. I mean, the, these, these kind of repeat through Scripture. Here we are in slavery and then, then God comes and miraculously delivers us in what he does. He, and, you know, in the Old Testament, here we are in slavery to sin, and Jesus comes as our Savior. Now I'm going to talk about the word blessed here in a moment because I want us to understand what that really means because it has some tremendous analogies to it. And so, But first, just understand that kind of little bit of correspondence there of what those are. Let's go to the second verse. second verse simply says this. It says, the poor in spirit are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now, let's talk about what that means. First of all, let's talk about what it means to be blessed. You see, when Jesus spoke, he would speak in Aramaic, and they would oftentimes write and translate it in Greek, and kind of, that's how they would take all this and do it. And so when you see the, the phrase, an exclamation like, oh, the blessedness of... That's literally what this means. It's speaking in present tense. It's not saying, just kind of like past tense, blessed are they who kind of do this. He's actually speaking as if this is an exclamation of who we are supposed to be. You know, it is very common in the Old Testament to use the word blessed. For instance, the first, the first came in Psalms and it begins in the, as written in the Hebrew. It says, O blessedness of the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. That is a form in which Jesus spoke to the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are not simply statements, they're exclamations. Oh, blessedness of the poor is literally what it means. And so why is that important? Because it means that the Beatitudes are not pious hopes of what shall be. They're not glowing, uh, gl- glowing but nebulous prophecies of some future bliss. They're, they're congratulations on what is. The blessedness which belongs to the Christian is not a blessedness which is postponed to some future world of glory. It is the blessedness which exists here and now. It is not something into which the Christian will enter. It is something in which we have already entered. So literally when we read this, what we're supposed to say is, oh, the blessedness of Fred and David, and all of us, and Debbie, and Kara, and and, you know, and and all of us, oh the blessedness, and and our names are brought into this, of those who are now poor in spirit. Does that make sense? I think we read the scriptures, and we either think that it was so far past that it has no no real thing to our life, no application, or we read it in a sense that it's kinda like a, a choice over here, but you need to understand the way this is written, it is as if Jesus is exclaiming to, to those disciples, those sitting there with him. He is saying, oh, the blessedness that you are now this. You have arrived, in other words. Because there's a big difference in that. Oh, the blessedness that this is who you are when you go to work every day. Oh, the blessedness this is who you are and how you live. Oh, blessed. I mean, I mean think about it, have you ever heard people call each other oh, say Oh blessed to each other, that kind of thing? I mean, I've heard people say, "Oh, you're one of the blessed. Literally, that's what it's talking about. I want you to get that, guys. You know, I mean it, it will it, it finds its fullness and its consummation in the presence of God for but for all that is in the present reality to be enjoyed here and now, the beatitudes in effect say... Oh, the blessedness of being a Christian. Oh, the joy of following Christ. Oh, the sheer happiness of knowing Jesus as my master, my savior and Lord right now. The very form of the Beatitudes is a statement of joyous thrill and the radiant gladness of the Christian life. In face of the Beatitudes, a gloom, encompassed Christianity is unthinkable. So I want you to look at your neighbor and just simply say this, we're supposed to be people of joy. Tell them that. We're supposed to be people of joy. Tell them. Look at your neighbor and say, you are blessed. You are blessed. We just, I heard some of you shout a minute ago as we were singing about our deliverance when, when the, the choir was singing today oh, about the resurrection, what it's saying to us, guys, what it is saying to us is, oh, the blessed that you have, you are and have been delivered. There is no reason for us to live in, in past discretions and in, in, indiscretions and depression, for we have been delivered. The chains have been broken. Oh, the blessed that would grab hold of what we already have and live it. For that's who we are supposed to be. Guys, the Christian life was never meant to be this out-of-body experience of watching all this happen, and we think it never, it never impacts us. It's never meant to be from the outside in. The Christian life is always meant to be lived from the inside out. Oh, blessed that you are poor in spirit. So what does that mean? What does it mean when it says, oh, blessed that we will be poor? What does that mean to us? What is, it, what is that really saying to us, the poor in spirit? Well, let me just say this. I never knew this. Time. I began to study through this. There are two words that are used, two Greek words that are used when it talks about being poor in Scripture. Get this. One of them talks about people who simply don't have a lot of money. They may be, by class, They're, they're, they're poor. You know, but but yet they have a house. They can, you know, they're they're able to eat. They're able to take care of themselves and that kind of thing. So there is a level of being they're poor, but that's not what this means. The word that is used here literally means, you know, it's it's the same reference that's used in the passage for Lazarus of the poor man. It's what it's talking about. He was so poor and diseased that he was looking for crumbs to fall from the rich man's table to the floor. He did not expect loaves or slices of bread. He was just hoping for crumbs. That is poor. He had absolutely nothing. In fact, the best sense of this word is being so poor that the person is a beggar. Is a beggar. You know, I mean, that's what it means. The the word to be poor, that's who it is. And what Jesus is saying to us is that we cannot be happy without seeing ourselves as spiritual beggars. We cannot be happy and we cannot be joyous if we do not see ourselves, you know, of who we really are. Literally beggars out in the streets and spiritually having nothing. When we honestly believe that we are spiritually poor, we will come to God for help. For even his crumbs are better than anything this world can give us. You understand what I'm saying? What he's saying is, look at me. He's saying the very beginning point, and the scripture talks about this, the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of that comes through humility and brokenness. Look at me. The whole world screams, look in the mirror and see how great you are and tell yourself how great you are. I'm not saying that we're not supposed to love ourselves, but we cannot love ourselves outside of what it means to be totally desolate and desperate to the person of Jesus Christ for the price he paid because his very identity is who we are. In the very beginning, we were created with his image in us. We did not make ourselves. We did not blow air in our our lungs. We did not create anything that is here. We are simply his. And the quicker we understand how really desolate we are, the quicker we can be on the road to being healed and being joyous in Christ that's what he's saying. Does that make sense? That's how poor we really are whether we want to admit it or not, but that's who we are. He says, "Blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of God is theirs." Guys, when he talks about the kingdom of God, Matthew 6:33 is my favorite passage. He says, "Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness." See, the kingdom of God is not necessarily a place as much as it is a person. What he is saying is if you want to find Christ, first and foremost, you have to become so desperate that you know you need him and there is no other place to turn. And in that time, yes, he will show up. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for the kingdom of God is theirs. Jesus is theirs, for he will. He cannot lie. His presence will fill us. Blessed. Blessed. Oh, you are blessed because you are filled with the Spirit of God. Oh, you are blessed because you are poor. But guys, think about this. How poor can we really be if in Christ we are given a home in heaven one day where the streets are gold and everything else, but it is him who gives that to us? Oh, guys, in our world, what do we do? We judge people based upon how much money they make and the position they have and all those things. He's saying, blessed are you when you realize That you can live in the greatest mansions this world can provide. But in spirit, you are really poor. I think there are many of you and many of us, many of us, and I know we all have done this at one time or another, but we have sought out something to fill that void in our life. And we can try to find it with our friends. We can try to find it with with popularity. We can try to find it with sports and everything else. But you will never find it until, first of all, you become so desperate as a beggar so hungry for him that you're willing to say, I'm yours. And then he says, you know what's going to happen? I'll come into you. The kingdom of God will show up. Guys, there is no kingdom without brokenness. Oh, he's there, but not personally in us unless we're broken. Look at the second one. The second one simply says, blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. I mean, the expression of mourning is an expression of deep grief. grief. You know, that's what it is. In keeping with the theme, you see, the people who agree with God about the evil of their own hearts can attain a state of blessedness. But we have to be in a place of total mourning. The Spirit comforts those who are honest about their sin and humble enough to ask for forgiveness and healing. When he talks about being mourning, that's the result of what happens, guys, when we come before God and we realize, it's like you wake up and you realize how poor you really are and you're broken, but specifically here, it's pointing to the place. If you look in, in chapter 11 of John, it says right before Jesus goes to the, to the uh, uh, tomb, right there at the tomb, but when he raises up Lazarus, it says he weeps and it says that a couple of times. Literally, he's mourning with them. They're mourning over Lazarus, the loss of their brother, and the loss of their friend. Jesus is mourning over the impact of sin because it's brought death into this world. He is saying that we, can, we are blessed when we can come to the place when we realize the real battle of this world is in a spiritual realm. Blessed are you that you're so brokenhearted that you're in agreement with God over your sin. In the Beatitudes, Jesus reminds his disciples that they cannot seek happiness the way the world does. True joy is not found in selfish ambition, excuses, or self-justification, and the enviable state of blessedness comes to those who mourn over their own sin. These are the ones I look on with favor those are the humble and contrite, with a contrite spirit who tremble at my word, Isaiah 66 six two. Listen to this. Those who learn to mourn over their own sin find, listen to this, the heart of God. An intimate fellowship with God is the very foundation of true joy. That's what he means when he says, blessed are those who are so broken they mourn, for they, look at me, will be comforted how are we comforted are we comforted because we medicate our pain we medicate our guilt are we comforted because we're giving something new or we go on a shopping spree or what do we no we're comforted by the presence of god isn't that ultimately what we're seeking in the first place blessed are those who are poor you are blessed that you were poor enough to realize how desperate and desolate you are. And you are blessed even more when you mourn over your own sin and you're broken the same way God was. That's why He sent Himself in the person of Jesus Christ, because He was telling us to mourn over Him. Mourn over our own sin. Come on, look at me, guys. Here's what I find so often in church I find this self awareness. As if we have never sinned. As if somehow we're so perfect. I find this self-awareness that we're so concerned about our own dignity. That we're not concerned about the divinity of God. And the brokenness it takes to know Him. Listen to me. Look at me guys. You want to find true inner dignity? You will find your own self-worth and everything when you find Christ. And when you finally surrender to Him, when we mourn in agreement over our sin with Christ, we don't play with our sin, we don't move it around like a chessboard, we don't make excuses for it, we mourn over it because we're broken by it. None of us want to admit that we're weak, do we? Anybody want to stand up and say, oh, I'm weak? No. But the true test of humility is whether we're broken, whether we're willing to mourn over our sin. And in that, Jesus will comfort us. Number three, look at what it says. It says, blessed are those, those who are gentle. The gentle are blessed, or the meek are blessed, for they, literally what it says, will inherit the earth. So what does it mean? You know, it means it is having the right right and the power to do something but refraining from the benefit from that for the benefit of someone else. Paul urged meekness when he told us to live a life worthy of the calling we have received. Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. It is literally power under God's control. And it means two things. Number one, a refusal to inflate our own self-estimation. And number two, it's a refusal to assert our own rights because we are so much under the control of Christ. You see, a servant's heart is the crux of the second aspect of meekness. We exercise power, but for the benefit of all people, not for ourselves. That's what it's about. It's about Christ and us surrendering completely to him. Blessed are the what? Blessed are the gentle, the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, literally, in reference to Moses, it was that they would inherit the land. If you take the same correlation, it is you will inherit the very benefit of God himself, the very blessing of God, for we are to live in that blessed state. He is saying, number one, blessed you are blessed if you're living in the, in the, in the literal poverty of who we are other than spiritually, the poverty of who, and how desperate and desolate we are, that we are mourning over our sin, and the result of that is a meekness that is power under control, a total infusion of humility to where we live without trying to push everything around, but letting God guide us completely. It's not about my will, it's about his will. Jesus was the perfect example of meekness in the New Testament. He said, not my will be done, but his totally, completely. That's what it's about. And in doing so, you'll inherit the greatest gift of all. Does that make sense? You get what I'm saying today, guys? Of who we're supposed to be? The fourth one simply says this, and I'm going to stop at this one. It says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, you are blessed. In other words, living the result of this brokenness, of this mourning, of everything, is that we would be living totally, surrendered completely to him, that we are filled with his righteousness. Jesus says that those who have this hunger will find their appetites filled. It is easy to see the wrongs in our workplaces and to want to do battle and fix them. If we do this, we're, we're, we are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, desiring to see wrongs righted. The Christian faith has been the source of many of the greatest reforms in the work. In other words, we need to hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God that he would be the one that we reveal that's what it's about to hunger and thirst after righteousness the reason why i'm stopping here this morning is because we're going to take the lord's supper here in a few minutes this is a perfect segue into and what well, i'm going to pick up with this next week and go deeper into this one but it's a perfect segue Let me ask you something, how many of you guys have ever really been so hungry that you you literally thought you were going to die? You ever been that way? Anybody ever been so thirsty? Yeah. Have you ever been hungry or thirsty? We in our our nation don't really understand that for a lot. Even our poorest of people are not usually far from from water that they can get or some, some place they can get fed. But I've been to nations, guys, where I've seen this. I've been in nations where I've seen people that are so thirsty that that their bodies are sunken in. They're so hungry that their bellies were swollen out. That's what he's saying. Do you hunger? Do you thirst after the righteousness of Christ? If you do, he is saying, I will not withhold my blessing from you. In other words, blessing are you that you would be Poor, and that you would mourn over your sin. Blessing are you that you would walk in this and hunger and thirst after me. That you would want the fruits of what God can give, not not a compromised version that we sell to the world. But in, look at me, honest appraisal of our life. We can never fully surrender to Christ and be willing to die and be persecuted which is the ultimate end of all this if that's what it takes we will never give ourselves up fully if we're not desolate and poor like beggars begging for bread it's kind of reflecting again are you really that hungry are you really that hungry and thirsty after God when you look at yourself in the mirror do you want to compromise and tell yourself how great you are or do you want to take a moment and say you know what I should be mourning and weeping because my friends don't know that I'm a Christian the way my life is and living is no do we hunger and thirst after him bring up that next slide This is a perfect segue, like I said, into the Lord's Supper. I love the way Paul puts this as he was preparing the meal. Here's what he said. He said, now in giving the following instructions, I do not praise you since you came together, not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. There must indeed be factions among you so that those who are proved may be recognized among you therefore when you come together it is not really to eat the Lord's supper for at the meal each one eats of his own supper ahead of others since one person is hungry while another gets drunk don't you have houses to eat in and to drink in for do you not do you look down on the church of God and embarrass those who are having nothing what should I say to you should I praise you I do not praise you for this for I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you on the night of which he was betrayed the Lord he took the bread he gave the thanks and broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this and remember some me in the same way after the supper he also took the cup and he said this is the cup of the new covenant established in my blood and we sang about that earlier do this as often as you drink it and remember of me As often as you eat and drink and the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Literally, that's an internalized kind of picture here. That as we blessed, if we're living that blessedness, Christ will fill us and live that way through us. Guys, there cannot be factions in our body. Because that, you know it's kind of odd that Debbie's with us today. Because her disease is actually, because her body attacked itself, isn't it? Your body kind of fought against itself. And look at all the things it's caused. All the chemicals that she's had to take over these years to, to fight that and lower antibody count and all those kinds of things. and All the pain that's happened and all the joint replacements. That's what's happening to God's body. He is saying, you're coming together but there's factions among you. He's saying you're coming together and you're not together as a body. He's saying you're coming together and you're more concerned about your own needs than you are the needs of the community and you're you're eating for to fill your own bellies when others are hungry. He's saying I'm the one who paid the price. Jesus did. This is about Christ. It's not about us. It's about him. You become blessed when you hunger after righteousness and holiness. You become blessed when we learn to mourn over our own sin rather than rationalize and compromise. He's saying get over ourselves and start coming together as His body. Because what if our arm decides it doesn't want to operate anymore? Our legs don't want to walk. or Our heart doesn't want to beat destroys the body, the point of the Lord's Supper is to come together, number one, for each one of us to have a time of self-reflection of who we really are and how we are doing with this. And secondly, it is to be a time of the body coming together, unified, taking the same thing. So look what he says, therefore, whoever eats of the bread And drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way will be guilty of sin. Against the body and the blood of Christ. So man should examine himself in this way. He should eat the bread and drink from the cup. Whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. In other words, as we take this Lord's Supper today. If you're a baptized believer, if you know Christ as your personal Savior, you're welcome take the Lord's Supper with with us because you're part of His body. But that's what it's about. I do not take this individually separate from my connection to how I fit into the full body of Christ. And how that impacts everyone else. Last night, guys, I spent about four hours with a young man with a, some friends of this young man who had been threatening suicide and he was put into a place this last week, he came back home and he kept threatening all these things yesterday and every time the officials would talk to him he would tell them no, that's not true, I didn't say that and what it was happening was he was impacting more and more and more people with his words and he didn't realize how manipulative it was and he was doing it so he could get attention. Because all he could really think about was what he wanted. I'm not saying that the young man didn't have issues. I'm not saying that the young man didn't he need help. I'm simply saying that I don't think he realized the ripple effect of saying these words over and over again and then denying it and playing games with people's minds. Because we don't know the effect of our actions on the full body of Christ, our words and what we say, and how they hurt us and the body and everyone else. The Lord suffers is a beautiful time. It's when we come together. I'm going to ask the deacons to come on down and get around the table. And then I'm going to ask us to stand right now for just a moment. And as He plays, I'm going to give you an opportunity in a moment of of stillness and quiet if you want to come to this altar as a Christian and kneel and take a moment to get your life right so that as we take the Lord's Supper we do it in the right way that we're all individually where we need to be that we hunger and thirst after righteousness that we mourn that we realize the weakness of who we really are That's what Paul's saying. He's saying every time you take the Lord's Supper, you do this and you remember the price that only Jesus could pay for you. No one else. For you. If you've never received Christ, your personal Savior, I would invite you to come. I'd love to tell you how to do that. Why don't you bow your heads right where you are right now. If you want to come to the altar, you can. But Let's take a moment of silence here. Let's prepare our hearts, honestly. If there's anything that's between you and God, why don't you surrender it up? If there's a broken relationship before this day is over with, why don't you take care of it? May there never be factions among us. May we always be one body headed in one direction. May we always be careful and mindful of our words and what we speak. May we seek his presence, his righteousness. May we be gentle and meek. And he will comfort us and fill us. May our soul desire be the presence of Jesus lived out among us and through us.